and welcome to the Collective Wisdom Podcast, the podcast that explores how to be a wiser version of yourself. This is a podcast that helps you to tap into your own inner wisdom and find the answers within you for how to live your best life. I'm your host, Kat Preston. I'm a certified life coach, and I help people to turn down the noise in their heads and tune into the wisdom in their hearts. Every week, I'll be asking my guests to tell their stories about what they've learned along the way and share some of their wisdom with us. I'm so thrilled you can join us. Hey there, wise friends, and welcome to episode 44 of Collective Wisdom, which is all about leading with empathy. And as if by magic, there was one of the most beautiful examples of doing just that this weekend just passed. I was watching one of my favorite TV shows, Strictly Come Dancing, which for those of you who are listening from outside of the UK, Strictly is a dance competition that's been running in the UK since 2004, where celebrities are paired with professional dancers and have to dance a new dance in front of a panel of judges each week. And it's evolved over the years into something that's more than just a dance competition. Behind all the spray tans and the fabulous costumes, it's really about showing people that if you put in the hard work and face your fears, that you're always capable of far more than you often believe. But the element that struck a chord most recently with me is the way that this show that gets record viewing figures year on year has been quietly but consistently pioneering in terms of representation over the last few years. From same-sex couples to contestants with disabilities that you might think would preclude them from a dance competition, Strictly has used its huge platform to question and challenge that narrative. And this week, all our hearts were completely won over by Rose Ailing Ellis and her partner Giovanni Paniche. Rose is the first deaf contestant on the show and has had us all completely in awe with the way that she's nevertheless able to respond to the beat in the music that she can actually feel. So in their dance this week, there was a moment where they cut the music and we all had just a tiny glimpse into Rose's world. Not only was the dance itself breathtaking, but it gave us all a chance to experience true empathy. There was no pity here for a woman who can't hear, but instead a whole new level of understanding of what it means to be deaf. I was lucky enough to be watching this with my three sisters and like so many people, we were moved to absolute tears by the beauty of it. You can imagine the scenes of four women sitting wailing at the television. Why am I telling you all of this? Well, in part, it's to share the magic that is Rose and Giovanni. And for anyone who hasn't seen that dance, there's a link to a clip of it in the show notes. But also because I think that it was radical empathy that called my guest today to do the work that she's currently doing in Nepal. Michelle Welsh not only founded a social enterprise, The Learning House, which helps so many young people in Nepal get access to the education that allows them to really lean into their brightest, fullest potential as humans, but she's done this without the backing of a team or resources to help her. It's grit and tenacity, empathy and a beautiful vision of what's possible if you keep going that have been the driving force behind her work. Like Rose, Michelle's positivity and energy are infectious and I'm just so thrilled she's here to join me to share her story. I'm 
so excited to be sitting down with my guest today. I hadn't met Ms. Michelle Welsh until we were on a call together a couple of weeks ago, and I was instantly drawn to not only her story, but our overall energy and enthusiasm for life. Her story is a fascinating one that takes her from growing up in Colorado via a squiggly career path involving criminal justice, corporate branding, and social media and tech, to a visit to Nepal that changed the course of her life completely. What started out as a two-week trip to a monastery to teach English and climb to the base camp of Everest to raise money for a non-profit back in New York resulted in Michelle making Nepal her home. Fast forward six, seven years, and she has founded Learning House, an educational institute that now helps hundreds of students a year by connecting them with international business leaders, career courses, English classes, and so much more. Michelle lives and breathes the impact that one person can make, but her real forte is in building community, which, as she describes it, is where a spark catches fire. But I think it was this quote that really sums up Michelle's refreshing approach to her life and work. I seek to bring together individuals from different backgrounds, experiences and expertise to create something magical. I like to think I delight people towards personal growth. So, Michelle, thank you so much for being here. I am just so thrilled to be able to spend a bit of time hearing about your story and, and digging into what life has been like for you. Even that intro, I'm feeling emotional. <laughs> that was so great. Um, it's, it's interesting because, you know, when people ask for me to summarize my trajectory and my career path, squiggly is a, is a nice description, but in a, in a strange way, all of my experiences have fit together like a puzzle. And I think I, I as I'm aging. <laughs> I'm learning to embrace that, that there is never just one path or one direction. And when you allow yourself to be open, the unexpected can happen and you never know. Yeah. And I think that's what I loved most about your story was that realization that it, it all starts to make sense if you just let it. You know, we were talking about whether you describe it as a carousel career or a portfolio career, but you allow the things to to surface that essentially are your foundational values and then how you apply those is your choice you know it's it's really important so tell me a little bit about that initial kind of trip that where you were in your life when you headed out to nepal in the first place so my very very first trip this is 2013, um, I was living in New York City, Upper West Side. Uh, I had already did a career change. So I did my master's at Columbia for social work, but somehow finagled my way into doing branding at a branding agency. And I had different interesting clients after that as a result. So I'd worked with Social Media Week. I'd done projects with Seth Godin. I worked with a group out in Utah called Summit. And for whatever reason, I still didn't feel like it was it. And I, and I had a, a breakup and thought I want to shake things up a little bit and ended up already having this trip to Everest planned. But like I said, I kind of opened it up a little bit and thought, okay, I'm going to Nepal. I'm going around, halfway around the world to a place that I knew nothing about. How can I make the most of it while I was there? And, and ended up at that time, 
you could find a lot if just a quick Google search, you found all of these volunteer excursions. And it was just kind of random and happened that I ended up teaching English at a monastery and absolutely fell in love. I fell in love with the people, wow. culture and the countryside. And I think it it fed everything that was important to me about feeling like I was helping a community, about feeling like I was researching and learning and totally out of my element. I mean, I was totally out of my element in a way that I had never felt before. And yet it felt like home. That's amazing. And it's sounding like a sort of almost like a, an awakening, almost like a sort of eat, pray, love moment. You know, you've gone looking for something and then well, you find it. Maybe I think when when you don't really know, you're open. And had I had pieces in place, maybe I wouldn't have been so open. So, you know, maybe if I had the perfect relationship or the perfect job or the perfect house, whatever, maybe I would have come back. I don't know. But the right timing, the right circumstance. And I was just so I was like a sponge and I didn't go with any sort of expectation or goal just to learn. I wanted life to teach me. I wanted to see who are these people that come into my life. And I was fascinated and completely embraced by the Nepali family who ultimately I call my own now. Oh, that's amazing. So, so tell me about them. So who, who are your Nepali family? So when I was um, placed at the monastery, they also assign you a homestay. And the woman who I now call Ama, which means mother, she couldn't speak English at all. But every night we would have rice together. She'd prepare meals for me. You know, she'd greet me when I'd come home from the monastery with tea and biscuits. And we developed just this relationship that was so healing. I learned more about how she grew up as a woman in Nepal, how she didn't have access to education she would go into the forest foraging for vegetables and food. And she's amazing. I mean, not traditionally educated, but she can look at you and know, do you have a headache? Are you tired? Do you need energy? Then go make some sort of concoction, give it to you and you're, you're healed. <laughs> she's mm-hmm. amazing. So just this intuitive knowledge. And I mean, she's to this day, such an inspiration and support to me. That's incredible. And it's sort of um, that that leaning into intuition and the whole environment. I mean, if you're in a monastery, to what aspect was the was the sort of spiritual environment part of this journey, do you think? I think this is a huge topic, actually, when you are a visitor, when you're you're traveling to new places, you have to leave your assumptions and your knowledge. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, growing up outside of Boulder, Obviously, I was familiar with yoga and some meditation, but this monastery that I was placed at, I would say that it was more cultural than spiritual. Uh, It was a Tibetan monastery, and there were certain practices that not everyone knew what they meant or why they were doing them. It was just a training, Um, but it was passed down, you know, from, you know, generations of these leaders. And again, if I had gone there saying, oh, a monastery should be like this, I think I wouldn't have connected in the same way as I did. Again, one of my closest friends in Nepal is a monk from there. And we would always joke that 
how did it work in the universe that I'm kind of this quirky personality and I end up at the quirky monastery in Nepal? It just, it just kind of matched. And uh, I think that, again, that was part of my connection and why I felt like I'm meant to be here on some level that I cannot explain. That's amazing. And so, yeah, I think there's a, a theme of openness, being open to possibility, to new experiences, to, but what you've also done is to an extent connected dots. So seeing that there are links between a monk in a monastery and a Forbes 500 business leader, you know, that's where your real kind of um, dynamism comes into play, I would say. Yeah, I, I I would attribute this to my own life experiences and then my education. So social work education really teaches you to look at systems, to look at the whole picture. So not necessarily the individual, but really someone's worldview, right? And mm. in Alt MBA and with Seth Godin, there's a lot of discussion around empathy. But I I really think that's the the core of social work is understanding that everyone has a different circumstance, but at, at the end of the day, we're all driven by the same things. We all feel fear. We all want belonging. We want to feel loved. We want to feel accepted and embraced. And when you strip away titles and labels and organizations, those human components are still very much there. How they're nursed, how they're fed, um, what what shapes someone's education, right? These kinds of things, they'll change the periphery, but that core, I think, really is the same no matter where you are in the world. Yeah, and I think that's what you were leaning into. That's what you saw, you know, and that is ultimately what empathy is all about, I guess, is, is being able to, even if you don't understand it straight away, be curious and really explore what that other person's worldview is. And that's what it's about is staying curious and asking questions. Yeah. We get into the assumptions or we think we know that's when you experience the trouble because we don't ever know. We it's impossible for us to understand what it's like to be someone else. So the more questions that you ask um, and when you when you come from a genuine place, people can see that. I think, you know, when you are curious and you do want to understand, people will open up and share. And I think that's what I experienced in Nepal when I was first there from, you know, the Sherpas and Solukumbu area, you know, nearby Everest to uh, the groom people that I met outside of Pokhara. They all saw that I was really curious and I wanted to know more about their life and what it was like for them just to live. And yeah. so they, they welcomed me into their home, into their lives, into their families with open arms. And I think this is something that I always felt like a duty or a responsibility of they've entrusted me with their stories. What can I do to give back? And it is that, it's that word trust. You know, you obviously have leaned into what it takes to form connection, to build trust, because from there you can do so much more. Right, right. And obviously there is some risk um, when you're exposed and when you're open and you do trust, that can be broken and mm. people can disappoint you or take advantage. And I think, um, you know, this is one of the harder lessons that I learned is, 
you know, I was a single woman in Nepal. Not everyone has pure intentions or is trying to get something. And you do have to be careful and you do have to set appropriate boundaries and protect yourself. Mm. There is this balance of too many walls, too many boundaries. You're going to limit what you experience and, and what you can give and what you get in exchange. Um, if it's too permeable, you're going to lose yourself as well. So I think, you know, as a social worker, as a giver, as someone who's generous and um, leads with empathy, that's still a process that I'm working on is, you know, how to set those boundaries that do serve you and serve others ultimately. Yeah. So to not become too enmeshed with the situation, even though you're willing to, you know, you really want to help, you really want to improve situations and, and make it better for people. It's yeah, that's fascinating. So when you were, you know, you first decided, okay, this is, this is more than just a two week trip. How did you, was that something that you, you realized, okay, this, I'm, I'm going to be here for a long time, or has that just evolved? It's, it's really, it was never a decision. It was just a series of events. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of my friends who are very, again, I, I went to Columbia for a, a grad program. So my friends went on to finish their clinical license, do research, become PhD uh, professors. So here I am, not with a fixed goal, leaving things kind of open and just seeing seeing what unfolds. Yeah. And again, there's there's pluses and negatives to living in this way, but staying in Nepal was never a firm decision. It was just a series of projects. Okay, this this is leading me in this direction. Okay, um, I'm gonna go back to New York for a month or two run some dinner parties, go back. So it was really, it was never just a firm uh, line in the sand. It it happened very naturally, but I do think, um, you know, with Learning House, again, my background is not business. So when I did decide to get involved with that, it felt substantial. And, And I'm the kind of person that once I make a commitment, I'm loyal. And, and I knew it felt weighty. It felt heavy when I decided to get involved. And I knew this is not a flippant thing. This is, this is something that I'm choosing to do and I'm going to give my all and do my best and let's see what happened. So at that point, Learning House became a, a real commitment. It was a real sort of undertaking that you- Yeah, and it's, I mean, in Nepal, it's a full process to get a business visa and, mm. and paperwork and- uh, it's official, right? So it definitely, it felt like, all right, I'm doing this. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's the sort of, when you talk about the challenges in terms of, um, the red tape and it's not, not always that easy just to move to a foreign country and live there. What, what other challenges came up for you? Um, well, definitely navigating a place like Nepal as a single woman, Um, You know, I come from lower middle class background. So, you know, I I, I didn't have like substantial savings or anything. So it was very much me going and doing this thing. And I didn't have an umbrella organization or a large nonprofit. Mm. I was very much an individual. Um, So I think 
in a place like Nepal where women still are struggling to have the same footing as men and caste system is prevalent and you know women my age are often married very young you don't see them in positions of leadership um choices there aren't as many choices for women i think being a woman just living in the community was interesting because a lot of people were watching right yeah, yeah. who is this woman you know from america and why is she choosing to come here because so many people that their dream is to go to the united states and a lot of the young people that come to learning house that's what they're trying for they're trying to understand how do I apply to go to a university in the United States? Uh, if I want to work somewhere else, what's the process? Um, and, and that was kind of a core pillar of Learning House when we began is how can we provide free, accessible information for people who are trying to develop themselves uh, professionally and academically? Because at the time, there wasn't that option in this area. Um, people were paying these education consultants a lot of money to help them write admissions essays and apply mm. to colleges. So, um, you know, in the beginning, and, and I always tell people when you're first to market in anything, a big part of it is education and explaining it to people and getting their buy-in in, in what you provide and what you do. And so here we are offering free services where people are like, is this legit? Is it yeah, good? Yeah, if I'm not paying for it, is it worth anything? Absolutely. So that was a very interesting dynamic. And you mentioned that the, the funding issue. Now, I know a lot of your funding has come through crowdfunding. So how have you gone about sort of building that momentum? Right. Like? So initially, you know, I think when you start a business, there's different ways that you can go about it, whether you have your own savings or your family, or you try to find investors. Uh, you know, I definitely took the Amanda Palmer approach of asking because I've never had money, but I've always had amazing people supporting me. Yeah. Um, and let me tell you, crowdfunding campaigns are super stressful and they're a lot of work and I don't like asking people for things, which is the irony in all of this. Um, but that's how we started. And then, you know, over time it became sustaining. So we charge a little bit for classes and, you know, it, it pays for itself. There was definitely a time where I was wearing several hats and doing writing work on the side and copywriting and consulting and using my savings to float learning house when we couldn't pay rent. And, it was really a struggle. Um, yeah. I remember at one point, you know, living in the office at Learning House to try to save rent and save money to get it going. And this last year with COVID, Nepal's, or the last year and a half, almost two years, Nepal's government has clo closed education centers. So we had to totally pivot our model from being a center to offering classes online, which wow. was a their whole evolution and challenge and struggle. And I'm just so proud of our team and my business partner there, Noang Groom. He's like the living Buddha, so patient and calm and steady and committed. And I, I think when you find good people like that, that's that's what keeps things going is, is having the right heart, having the right strategy and a commitment to an overall vision. Yeah, and it is that vision. And I think also, I mean, you are a phenomenal writer and I think your capacity to 
tell those stories to really bring that vision out into the world in a way that people can connect with has played a, a really instrumental role in in just you know creating that snowball effect of sustainability as you say yeah and i i think i've i've learned a lot too of i think i've always been a hustler you know even in college working a lot of jobs and just forcing things and making it work and you know now it's been over 8 years since i first went to nepal and and maybe this is age and maturity but i also realize you can relax too people see the intent and you don't always have to force things and sometimes when you let go the best things happen mm. uh, things that you could have never anticipated or or planned for understood yourself when you kind of release and let things unfold as they should kind of works out <laughs> yeah it's so a sort of not not stress the small stuff to try and yeah see the bigger picture even when the little niggly things are getting in the way that's hard though that's a challenge in itself yeah yeah and for a lot of founders and entrepreneurs so much of it is this hustle grind culture and and it's almost like showing people that you're successful before you are and that's how you get people to buy into what you're doing and it again it's it's a balance of being honest about the struggles and the obstacles but also being confident about we're in a good place and what's meant to be will be and and the right people will come to you and the right customers will come to you and it's going to work out yeah <laughs> which from the outside certainly that's you know that's what's so compelling about your story it really does feel like it is working out even in spite of covid and all the additional challenges that that's brought forward Yes, but I I do think that it was never my project, it was never Noong's project. It was definitely by the community for the community. Yeah. And I think especially when you're trying to do something in a place like Nepal, it's no one person. It's very much you need that communal support and and that's how so much of Nepal operates. It's relational. So I think that also takes pressure off of any one person from making the right decisions or making the right choices because it is com community led and community driven and I think what's interesting about Learning House is there was never really a traditional advertising campaign. So yeah. uh, in Paul there's still very much there's radio and TV ads and this kind of thing and we had always led with you know our advertising or it was free events whether it was an outdoor film festival or um latte art competitions you know it was low cost or free events and that's how the community started to understand what learning house was and and what was provided at the center yeah and once you get the community behind it and that that word community is just so that's what i associate with you having sort of done the research for for today's um episode and i i think even even you know we were talking before we started recording about project um exponential which again it just that's where you naturally go to it's just how can i bring people together and make unusual slightly different connections and see see what happens you know leave it to the magic let go of it myself and just see what happens exactly exactly and what's funny is 
a lot of people see me and they see like a dynamic, energetic person, but I also get extremely socially anxious. And I remember before I would lead these dinners, I would have to, I'd be on the subway, you know, going downtown and all these dinners were at kind of secret restaurants, you know, downtown Manhattan, very cool. I would have to talk myself up before I would go into this room because I would get so nervous because here are 12, 15 people who I respect and highly admire from different industries. So whether uh, therapists or creatives or musicians, here they all were and they didn't know what was going on. They didn't know who they were going to meet, but they trusted me that, okay, this is going to be a legit thing. And then again, word of mouth. I didn't advertise. It was just those people that went. They had a great time. They met incredible people. I would facilitate conversation with questions and there was an arranged seating chart and they would tell their friends, I went to this thing. It was amazing. Uh, it's not like traditional networking, but I met someone that I can work with or do projects with. And just suddenly I'm getting messages from people all over Manhattan, all over the New York area. And then even outside of New York of people wanting to come to these dinners. Wow, uh, Fascinating. And I remember when I first was traveling back and forth to Nepal, I would be in Nepal and dinners were happening in Manhattan. It was really an incredible thing. I, I, um, I was, there was a little clip in the New York Times about the dinners and I was at the monastery at the time. And I remember thinking like, am I in the right place? Should I be in New York? What yeah. is, uh, and then again, you know, you just kind of have to let go and trust and, you know, whatever's meant to be will be. That, that was actually going to be my next question because, you know, they're two very different lives, you know, monastery in Nepal and these amazing dinners with incredibly networked people in New York. It's like how I would probably be, always thinking I was in the wrong place and, and having FOMO and not knowing where to put myself and what am I doing? How do you manage that? How do you navigate it? Very much. This is very much the story of my life. I mean, so I, I grew up in Colorado, you know, 4-H, horses, this kind of thing. Uh, I ended up going to NYU when I was 17. Uh, I got into a writing program and a small scholarship and I always had this tension between I love the mountains, I love Colorado, but I love the energy of the city. And I love just this promise of potential yeah. that I found in Manhattan of you never know what could happen. And so I could never decide. And something about going to Nepal, it was like I was so clearly out of place. <laughs> and in a strange way, it worked. It was like, you know what? I don't belong here and that's okay. Yeah, yeah. So suddenly it's like, oh, phew, I can just relax for a bit, yeah. Yeah, I, that I I relate to that so much. You know, I've I've called six different countries home: so Hong Kong, Malaysia, Singapore, but never quite as um, culturally outlandish or different to my you know upbringing as as Nepal. But there is a comfort in being a visitor. You can just allow yourself to be a guest in in someone's country, and that curiosity and maintaining a respect for different worldviews and the things you learn as a result is just huge. So I, I relate to that completely, but I still always have this, oh, there's always something going on over somewhere else that I'm thinking, well, that would be interesting too. You know, I never really want to put solid roots down as a result, I think. I feel that. And, you know, what's interesting is 
again, I, I became very dear friends with one of the monks. And then my business partner, Noong, he does come from a, a Buddhist household. And I learned a lot from them about, you know, letting things go. And, and they have this idea of this might not be it. There could be another life. And they would often joke, well, not this <laughs> next life, I'll be the football player or next life, I'll do this. And in some way, it's relieving of, okay, I don't have to get it perfect this time around. Yeah. Maybe there's something else or. Uh... That might be the essence of it. It's just this, this might just be my practice life and uh, I can always have another go. And, and yeah, that, that is quite a sort of comforting thought somehow. It just leaves you feeling, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. So you mentioned um, at the beginning, your, your host family and uh, you said Amu. Ama, Ama. Ama, Ama. And that was obviously a relationship full of kindness, you know, um, even though you didn't have language in common, there was clearly a, a bond right from the beginning. But when I asked you about sort of acts of simple kindness that have impacted you, what came up for you? I mean, this was so hard for me because there's been so many and I really, I am who I am because of the people around me. Mm -hmm. uh, I've had such dear friends and such incredible people supporting me um, you know, I don't have brothers or sisters, but I have the dearest people in my life who have always been cheering for me and helping me and, and trying to support me and, and just there and solid. And so when you said a simple act of kindness, <laughs> there are so many. And I think the, the key here is simple. It doesn't have to be huge. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, just this week, I got a gorgeous letter from Margot Aaron, who is um, spearheading the, the copy workshop or the copywriting yes, workshop. Yes, yes, Totally unexpected, a beautiful thank you note. And it meant the world to me. And it got me thinking, it's those small, unexpected kindnesses that really give you power. Yeah. <laughs> that, that kind of fill up your tank and yeah, I, I i don't know about you but i find just in those moments of self-doubt or where you wake up and think what am i doing am i am i in the right place there'll be something a little email i had one this morning that you know we just hosted a a call with two women who i think are the most amazing activists they've been saving an orchard and i sent them the episode and they um kina came back to me and she said gosh it actually makes me sound quite um compassionate caring actually quite intelligent and I said that's because that's what you are you know but it was just that moment of she didn't need to reach out you know it was just such a lovely thing to do um so I think it's those little moments where yeah as you said one little note and it actually lifts you when you're writing it if you if you're doing it with intention and just saying I'm thinking of you just reaching out I think that's the key. And I think especially when you're, I mean, when you consider the world now and everything that's going on and it doesn't have to be grandiose and it doesn't have to be huge. And, you know, the best action that you can take today could be that small message just yeah. to say, I appreciate you. Thanks for your work. Or, you know, your energy is really inspiring to me, or I really like how you said X, Y, Z, whatever it is, just being thoughtful in that way, because that, extends beyond that exchange. Um, you know, this, this, this note that I got, I ended up sharing parts of it with someone else. And then they felt, you know, so it, it's really, it's a ripple effect. And 
uh, I think it's easy to lose sight of that because we, you know, oh, do I need to write a big check to an organization or do I need to volunteer 20 hours of time? No, you don't. Uh, And it's kind of like starting an exercise program, right? Are you going to go out and run an hour if you've been sitting on the couch? No, you're going to start with a small walk around the block and see where that leads and how does that make you feel? And then that's going to push you into the next day. So I, I think that's, you know, if, if people remember nothing else from our conversation, it's do something small and nice for somebody today in an unexpected way. Yeah. And if you make a practice of that every day and, and as you've done, you know, over time and you build a community and you look back over six years and just those little acts of kindness, those little things where you just, you show up, you bring your presence to something. Wow. It amounts to a hell of a lot at the end of it. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Now I always finish with music because um, that's just because for me, it's been a way of connecting often with places that I've visited, you know, a certain, certain tune will take me straight to Malaysia in 1996 or whatever it is, you know, it's, it's kind of wow. So how, how's that played out for you? What, what, what role does music play in your life? Uh, my mom was a singer. Music has always been such a big, I love to dance. I feel like if you want to change your, your mood, you, you put on some music and start dancing. Yes, yeah. Uh, one of, and this is actually how I started to learn Nepali when I first arrived and was interested is through music. So whether it was pop songs that kids were listening to, or there was this group called Nepathia and the lead singer Amrit Gurung is from the area that I was in, uh, you know, nearby Pokhara. And this song called Jivan Ho, it's gorgeous. It's talking about life and that sometimes the sun is shining, Sometimes it's dark, you know, there's ups and downs, it's life, you know, it's kind of like it reminds me uh, of the turn, turn song, you know, there's a season for everything. Um, So that was one of, I can still to this day sing this song, but it's, it's, it's part of how I learned. And do you, do you speak um, Nepali? You speak fluent Nepali? Conversational. I cannot debate, uh, you know, a literary article, but I can go to the market and order fruit and ask people how they're doing and talk to them about, uh, you know, their family. So very conversational. Yeah. Uh, Fantastic. Fantastic. And then the the other piece of music that I wanted to share. So there's an artist, his name's Russ and you know, his lyrics maybe are not acceptable for everyone who's listening, but I respect this guy's worth work ethic so much. Every week he's cranking out a new song. He produces and writes and mixes everything. He could sign with large labels, but he's always chosen to do it his way because he wants artistic control and, and freedom of expression and creativity. And uh, there's a song recently that he put out. It's called Lucky and it's very up. It's, it's light. It's like a summer jam. Um, I really respect people like this who yeah. make their own rules and, and march to their own drum and have confidence and aren't afraid of, you know, tipping that scale over to into being cocky. But he says this is this is what it is. And he's recently released an audio book and it's all about speak it into existence, you know, positive affirmation and uh, 
what you want to be, you say, and you become it. And, and all of this energy will come back to you if you stay focused in that way. So, uh, Russ. <laughs> what is so remarkable about, about that story, Michelle, is that that's exactly how I would describe you. So I can see why you lean into that attitude of just positivity, a little bit of hustle mixed in there, being in that sort of I have agency over this. I can actually make my own luck. You know, when you when you put yourself out there, it reverberates right back to you. Everything you've just said is just right there inside you. So, so, that, so the next question about the the I think you were asking for for mantras or quotes. Well, uh, wisdom. So we're all about, yeah, if you have a piece of wisdom that you would want to share with the world, can you sum it up in a nutshell? I mean, I have two that I think guide my life is one is find your tribe. So find the people who believe and operate in the same way as you, because there are a lot of naysayers and there are a lot of people who are jealous or scared or may not be supportive. And so to find people who operate in the same way is so important because you feed, you, you help each other. Um, so find your tribe and yeah. the others all my friends laugh because there's so much leap in the net will appear. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. Oh my god. Well, again, you have you have definitely leapt and it feels like yeah, you were just caught by the right universe. Absolutely. And uh, again, I laugh with some of my my dearest mentors because I'm an anxious person and a lot of people deal with anxiety by going in and my way of dealing with it is going out and just launching myself into new things. But it does require an element of trust, but I think at the root of it is don't let fear stop you. Because if you hold yourself back and you're uncertain and that uncertainty prevents you from acting, you're not gonna live life. And you're only going to experience the sliver, I feel like, of what is there for you and, and what is for the taking. And so when you do just kind of launch yourself and maybe you don't know the end and that's okay, but it could be very surprising and, and beautiful at the end. And that's clearly something that you have totally embraced in your own life. And without knowing what the end is, you know, all the beauty and experience that you've found through what you've been doing just sounds quite magical. Thank you. Thank you so much. But it's also so beautiful that you've been impacting so many lives positively in the work that you're doing. And I guess that is what I can hear in your voice. You know, there's a real heart centered kind of drive there that is just so compassionate. I mean, this kind of work and, and any teacher or educator or social worker knows this, that you're playing a long game mm -hmm. and the return is not always immediate. Uh, just recently, I had a former student who's in Australia. She's now an RN. And I remember when she came and she was learning English and, and first trying to go to Australia for her studies and another a former student he just graduated with his engineering degree and is now working in Canada and another student, she has gone through 
hoops and over bridges and is now finishing her art degree in Texas. And you think, my goodness, <laughs> how many stories are there like this that maybe we don't even know about? And it's so inspiring. I mean, people who have a growth mindset and are trying to better themselves and are trying to learn. And it's so inspiring to me. But then to, to top it all off with going to a different country, beating so many different odds. I mean, these kids are so inspiring to me. And kids, I'm not, I mean, they're young adults. They're adults, but yeah. It's so inspiring. And my own father, he was an immigrant. So he was from Holland and ended up getting a soccer scholarship to come to the United States. And I know it wasn't easy for him, but I grew up knowing the risks and the sacrifices taken to follow a dream. And that's always been in my mind, in the back of my mind. And I see this now with a lot of the students who go through Learning House and it's it's really touching it's it's so beautiful yeah absolutely and it's those stories i guess that you're now living for that that bring you that joy and you know we started this conversation with that quote of you know i delight people towards personal growth and it's so clear to me that that's exactly what you do every single day thank you thank you thank you so much for joining me michelle it's been it's been like having a just a a refreshing breath of sunshine on a sunny day it's just that magic that you bring into every room that you uh you do you light up a room it's been a joy to be with you so thank you i really appreciate it thank you so much for the invitation and the conversation and um i i, uh, I feel like people who tell these kinds of stories now who are shining a light on on positive windows in the world we need more people like you so thank you kat thanks for doing this my pleasure, my absolute pleasure. And good luck with all your next ventures, because I'm sure there are many, many, many more to follow. And there'll be links in the show notes for Learning House, for, you know, Michelle has her own website. If you want to be inspired by the work that she does, or if you think that there may even be something that you've got a dream inside you, um, yeah, follow Michelle and, and find out just how you go about taking those first steps. It's just magical. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye now. Well, I think you'll agree that's an example of ordinary people with extraordinary stories and just how with that dedication you can really make a difference. It takes someone with Michelle's integrity, guts, courage, tenacity and empathy to get projects like Learning House off the ground, but it takes people like you to support them. So if you're at all minded to find out more about the organisation and what and the work it's doing, you can find all the links in the show notes. And I know Michelle would be very grateful to hear from you. And if you want a little dose of inspiration, do check out Rose and Giovanni's dance, which was purely magical. Thanks again for listening and I do hope you all have a good week. 
Thank you so much for listening. There are almost a million podcasts out there to choose from, so I really appreciate you for choosing this one and spending your valuable time with me today. If you found it helpful, I would be truly grateful if you would rate and review it as it helps others to find us. And if you haven't already, you can hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts to be sure of getting every episode sent to you. You can find all the resources we talk about and more about my guests in the show notes over at collectivewisdom.podbean.com or you can find me on Instagram at collectivewisdompod where I'd love to hear any feedback, suggestions for new guests or comments that you have. I'd love to hear from you. And if you're interested to know more about how my coaching can help you, you can find more about that on my website at catpreston.com. Thank you so much for joining me.